Welcome to Austin New Church Podcast. My name is Stephanie Swan, and I'm the children's pastor here. If this is your first time here, we're so happy that you've decided to join us. We are a progressive faith community dedicated to the pursuit of inclusion and social justice. Whether you're a beloved out-of-towner or just catching up, please enjoy this week's message. Good to see you today. If you came in a strapless spaghetti situation and you're cold... We apologize. It is frosty in here. Let me tell you a little story. In the middle of a blue, hot, blue water highway show last night, we lost an AC unit, and we were panicking as the temperatures were rising because Trey watches this on his phone. This is what it means to be an executive pastor now. He's watching a football game while he's watching the temperature in the room. And then we had the most miraculous of human beings who you need to know on a first-name basis, our AC guy named Alex, who watches us and is part of our congregation, came out and fixed it this morning, handled business, and now it's frosty. So maybe we should have warned y'all. Yeah. Seriously, Alex, you're a magician, and if you need an AC guy, call me. Call Trey. We do this all the time. I think he almost works primarily for ANC people now. Maybe not. We don't share him with the Baptists. That's, that's how we are. We're stingy Methodists like that. So good morning, one and all. My name is Jason Ashley Morris, and if I gave you my middle name, that means I love you. I love my middle name. Don't think I'm ashamed of that, but I give that out sparingly. So now you know my middle name is Ashley. I'm the lead pastor here. And if you've been coming the last two weeks, you haven't heard from me yet. If I don't know you, let's solve that. We can solve that with a drink of any sort you want, any time of day. Pretty soon, this is an interesting thought, I'll be celebrating my 10th anniversary here at ANC. That feels like, feels like a long time. I know you guys look old enough, but I, there's no way I'm old enough to have been here for 10 years. <laughs> What a fun ride it's been. You guys have consistently been caring and kind and open-hearted to my family and to myself. You know, Donna, I was thinking of you this morning as I I wrote this. A faith community is an extraordinary gift in the life of a pastor. Like, I get that it might be a gift to your family to have a pastor that for a while joins you on a journey, but what an extraordinary gift to the heart of a pastor is a congregation. It really is. You guys are endlessly patient and kind as I think and dream and write and chase this whimsical, unpredictable muse of mine. That's how the ancient Greeks thought about inspiration. They called it a muse, which as I see it is just another name for the spirit of God that lives deep inside me, pulling me endlessly deeper into myself, but also simultaneously out into the world, into the spaces that you and I inhabit together. What a fun journey. My muse has been whispering to me sometimes screaming to me for these 50 years, and I've done my best to journey along with it throughout my life, sometimes moving quickly at other times barely moving at all. But here's what I know. That journey, however, has been accelerated and deepened since I've been part of this amazing little community, and so thank you for that. I guess Halloween would be the anniversary sometime around then. But if you've been around a minute, you know that we don't do things half done around here. When we get together, sparks fly. Think of the Barbie movie, think of 1946, the movie we just all gathered to watch. We push one another, we challenge one another. I often hear from people that they're on to the next church because it's too much work to stay here, and I get that. That's just sort of on brand for us. We're always challenging, always deepening our faith together. So today we're beginning a new preaching series entitled, Wouldn't It Be Nice? And I just wonder how many of you in the room are old enough to see the logo and know that that's the Beach Boys? Anybody? Come on now, Brimberries. Fresh back from the Galapagos Islands. Y'all, if you want to feel small about your life, if you want to feel insta-shamed about how you never do anything fun, just watch what the Brimberries do all the time. They go everywhere cool. I haven't been anywhere yet. Anyway. 
I just had to do that to you. I just had to. Wouldn't it be nice? Notice that's a question. It's not a statement. I don't actually find a ton of life in statements, if I'm honest. Life hovers over questions as far as I'm concerned. You see, when you pin the butterfly to the poster board, something is lost. You got to let it fly. You got to let it flit. You got to let it flutter. You got to let it migrate to new places it's never been, but was somehow nonetheless biologically wired to go. I know some people like to study faith as if it was a specimen with a pin through its heart, still static, unmoving, predictable, cataloged, fully understood, but that's not me. Seminary didn't do that to me. For me, the energy of a thing is in the change itself, in constant yearning to be free, in the unpredictability of movement, in the embodiment of ancient instinct. And maybe you can tell that I've been watching about 30 hours of documentaries around the universe and the cosmos. Has anybody watched Our Universe, narrated by Morgan Freeman from last year? Just treat yourself to the gospel, friends. I'm just telling you. Anyway, wouldn't it be nice is the question. So here's how we arrived at that question. The lectionary takes us now into a long sequence of passages from the book of Matthew, which of the four Gospels is the one written primarily to Jewish readership. The readers Matthew had in view uh, were Jews scattered not far from the holy city nearly seven decades after Jesus floated away. And I use those words floated away because I just want you to not fall asleep in the old terminology of ascended to heaven as if heaven is above the ether. Jesus floated away from his friends and seven decades later, Matthew sits down to write, and you heard me correctly, 70 years. We can never forget that lots and lots of years passed before any of these stories were committed to paper. I point that out, friends, because it helps us to be more honest about the agendas and the filters of these writers. By 70 years after the fact, these stories had morphed and molted. They had shape-shifted significantly. At this point, I'm willing to say this, only fools deny that. Not all of the Bible is the gospel. For some of you that are new, I'm just going to read this paragraph. I was tempted to take it out because if you've been around a minute, you hear me say this all the time. But not all of the Bible is the gospel. But the gospel is certainly buried in there somewhere. If you go down in the Bible and you pull up something less than good news that sets all things free, friends, go back down in the Bible. If you come up with judgment or bigotry or nationalism or tribalism or patriarchy or hatred for anyone, go back down. You haven't yet found the gospel buried in the text. You've just sunk your teeth into the Bible. And the Bible doesn't transform lives, friends. The good news of God's love does. Okay, I'm glad that four of you agree. Thank you, Jeremy. You never know when you're sitting there on a Tuesday at 4 a.m. typing out, you know, cat paws on keyboard. You never know if you're going to get even half of a... But Jeremy's in the house, so we're responding today. We have to handle our ancient text, friends, with appropriate care and awareness. A major part of that is understanding the central themes and the author's intended audience, and that matters. If you don't understand those things, you're never going to track the nuances and the peculiarities of an old text like this. What am I doing? I'm setting us up for a new series. The central, th central theme in Matthew is this idea of a kingdom of heaven. You might know this. Matthew mentions it 32 times, and it seems to be interchangeable with a similar phrase, the kingdom of God. But perhaps Matthew uh, is extra sensitive to his Jewish readership who would have no doubt been hesitating around using the name of God itself. So Matthew gives us this formula, kingdom of heaven. Now, many have taken a stab at defining exactly what Jesus meant by this term. You may remember the time I spent most of a summer elaborating on the kingdom, working primarily from the ideology of a precocious Irish theologian named Diarmid O'Murchu. He's one of my favorites. I love his work. He gets a kick out of the fact that a little Methodist church in South Austin reads his writings and preaches his theories. We DM sometimes on the Book of Face. <clears throat> Dear Mid, that's supposed to be funny, but it wasn't funny. 
I just found him. I'm like, once you work for Joel Osteen, nobody's big. You just track people down. I just found him. I'm like, dude, I've read all your books and I've preached all your stuff. And he just gets tickled by that. I have no idea where and he lives in Ireland. But anyway, we love you, Dermot. He wrote a half dozen books on this subject of the kingdom. And if you want to know more about how I understand that work, go back in the ANC archives. I think it's before Spotify. You'd have to go back on Apple Podcasts to find it. But let me just summarize that a bit as I set up the book of Matthew. We're going to be talking about the kingdom of heaven for a while now. Jesus spoke Aramaic, not Greek. So since there's no concept in Aramaic that can be simply and directly translated into the Greek idea of a kingdom, it's safe, therefore, to surmise that Jesus never spoke of a kingdom, at least not in the sense that the text seems to, seems to suggest all these years later. You see, kings and queens and conventional power and standing armies and punitive policies of taxation and immigration, the minting of coinage and concepts of commerce and highways upon which to move about an empire, none of those ideas travel well inside the central idea that Jesus taught, a concept his friends described to us as a kingdom of heaven. Jesus spoke rather of a circle of mutual empowerment, not a power structure or a kingdom at all. But nevertheless, we must face up to this language because it's so prevalent in the New Testament. So we'll quarry this idea for meaning since it holds such a big piece of the philosophical real estate of the book of, of the Gospel of Matthew. I don't think, no matter what Matthew, what word he uses, I don't think that Jesus was sanctioning ideas of earthly power, friends, with his teachings. I just don't think he was. What Matthew is describing can be best understood as a realm of God's pristine influence. The place on earth where all is as it might be, as it should be. Or as Dana describes, that's simply that place that feels like home. And I think she's right there. That probably gets the idea well. When Jesus speaks of a kingdom, he's describing a place where things work like they're supposed to. To which I have but one question. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if they did that here too? So maybe now you see how we got here to the question that shapes this series. Now, I'm trying to set us a table, so we have plenty of parables of head, lots, lots of things to, to, to look forward to, mostly using the metaphors and imagery of wedding feasts and vineyards, interestingly, to describe the way that things work in heaven or in the realm of God's unencumbered influence. But before we get to the parables, we have this little exchange between Peter and Jesus to account for. At this point in the public ministry of Jesus, nearly everything he says and teaches happens within the antagonistic earshot of the religious elite who predictably are just about to shut this thing down once and for all. But first, Jesus and Peter exchanged some heated words, as they were wont to do. In fact, the subject of Satan comes up. That sounds fun, doesn't it? On a, what is it, September 3rd morning? I mean, you had to know this was coming, friends, if you've been following along. A few weeks ago, I went on record saying I no longer believe in the doctrine of hell the way that it was taught to me growing up. You had to know that Satan was going to hit the windshield soon. So hang with me as we read our text today from the lectionary, Matthew 16, 21 through the end. It reads this way. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day be and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, that's Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, and I think maybe he turned out to the disciples to let Peter cool down a little bit. You know, you have to, you got to let the thing cool down. That was a pretty hot little exchange. 
verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any of you wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is come. And I just love how Matthew uses the Son of Man. Guys, we so wanted to call him King and God and the Son of God. Matthew just remembers him as the Son of Man. You're the Son of Man. You're the daughter of man. I just love how he normalizes that. Anyway, separate sermon. There's like 19 sermons here. We're just going to glance over them. For the Son of Man has come with his angels and glory of his Father. Then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay, for a little context. Jesus was getting into real trouble with religious leaders at this point. The pot was just about to boil over. And it wouldn't have taken a prophet to see that. When you poke empire, both religious and political, you eventually get the hammer or the cross in that case, in this case. Jesus knew what he was doing. Just a few chapters ago, Catherine pointed out this week, his cousin John had been beheaded. Jesus could have stayed in hiding instead of, instead of moving right into the city, but no friends, he charged right into the heart of Jerusalem, into the seat of power itself. His friends, I'm sure, did their best to maintain some, op some optimism, but Jesus was marching hard at this point towards some kind of tangible sanction if not a public death. All of his words were being scrutinized now, but he had more to teach his disciples and he couldn't quit yet, so he's doing two things at once. He began this sort of ambidextrous approach to leadership. On the one hand, he's speaking to power. On the other, he's finishing the work of preparing his friends for what was ahead. Jesus was multitasking. And to be honest, it both worked and didn't. His disciples were still totally surprised when things happened almost exactly the way he warned them that they might. But as we know, such things are not easy to understand. I'm talking about how suffering and loss go hand in hand with love. That seems to be what gets Peter hung up here. This is why Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him to his face. You see, the text says Peter pulled Jesus aside to reprimand him, essentially saying, dude, no way you're, we're going to let this happen to you. No way, Jesus. Which is where things get a little squirrely. We'll come back to this in a minute. But first, pause for a second with me. What do you know about Satan? What were you taught growing up? Chris Ramirez is grimacing. I was taught he was the enemy of God. I was taught that he was a musical angel, according to Isaiah, that developed a little attitude issue when he got his jazz kicked out of the third layer of the cosmos, the heavenly ether. I was taught that. Slightly stranger still, I was taught he was responsible for all sorts of inconveniences and setbacks like parking tickets and lost car keys. And the day it rained when we were at Disney World on vacation, that was Satan's fault. <laughs> Satan was this person responsible for whatever we didn't want to accept. Satan used money and sex and fame and booze and drugs and rock and roll to corrupt the world. He stood against God as the enemy of all that's good and lovely and kind. Friends, we actually talked an awful lot about Satan growing up which is partly why today's passage confuses me a little bit. Honestly, I think it always did. Even as a child, what I was taught about Satan made no sense to me, in part because of this very passage. You see, Satan didn't walk up on Jesus and Pete in the middle of an interesting leadership moment. Jesus is speaking to Peter here, and this is what Matthew writes down, and I reiterate verse 23. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Y'all, some HR advice for free. 
Don't ever address your team lead this way in front of your peers. Anybody thinking this? Brett, are you thinking about this? Exactly. Don't do this to your team lead. This undermines all credibility. Maybe this was a sideline conversation. I sure hope so because this is a rough one. But friends, we're not talking about a red dude with a pitchfork and a bifurcated tail. Jesus is speaking to something deep inside Peter. Something or someone or some energy that spoke for a moment at least as Peter. Which is the point. As I see it, evil bubbles up from somewhere. The heart from within. Jesus made this point in several ways throughout his teaching ministry. Locating the real work of good and evil at the level or within the realm of the human heart is a key to understanding the message of Jesus. This turn towards the inside world, toward the heart, of course, is the cardinal move that all great mystics encourage. All of the work is inside, friends. The whole world is inside. Every epic battle, every hard-won victory, everything, it's all inside. Good, evil, love, hate, possibly heaven and hell. And this, my friends, means we're going to need to unwind some of what we were taught. Wouldn't it be nice if Satan was actually the enemy of God, locatable in time and space somewhere in the ether or the underworld? Wouldn't it be nice if we could locate Satan outside of us? Wouldn't it be nice if we could fix the world by fixing all the evil outside of us by simply eliminating that single being? Wouldn't that be nice? If you dig deep into the Greek words that Matthew places in the mouth of Jesus in this exchange, you don't end up with a dude in red tights, friends, with little yellow horns carrying a pitchfork listening to heavy metal. That's for you, Nathan. Where are you, Nathan? You end up with some kind, hear me now, you end up with some kind of entity or energy that accuses the children of God. The Satan or the devil is the one who brings false accusations against what is good, what is loved, what is holy. The Satan is the one who tells false stories about how things actually work. So with that in mind, Peter hears Jesus saying, suffering and loss and humiliation are about to be part of this loving path, this merciful way of God in the world, and Peter snaps. Peter hears Jesus imply that breaking and pain and undesired reduction of influence and power are part of this loving way, part of this new circle of mutual empowerment, part of this kingdom of heaven made real today, and he speaks defiantly against such a claim. It makes no sense, and by standing resolutely against such a possibility, Peter becomes Satan, literally. Peter's eyes roll back in his head because he simply cannot make sense of how death could possibly be part of this upward way. You see, according to Matthew, Jesus speaks a compound sentence in verse 21. I will go down to Jerusalem where I will be killed and then I will rise on the third day. But Peter didn't hear that second part. He got stuck on the idea of death. He simply couldn't reconcile a public humiliation, a loss, a defeat with the positive ending he was hoping for which drew an immediate response from Jesus. Hello, Satan, says Jesus. Of course, the ancient world saw Satan as evil personified. Of course, they saw him as some kind of epic arch rival to the gods, lord and master of the underworld, of course. And I wish they were right, friends. I do wish they were right. I wish that was true because when, then we wouldn't have to deal with the fact that false voices, hear me, nasty, persistent voices that contradict love, that refuse to metabolize suffering, voices that deny mercy, voices that hate and dehumanize all that is good and lovely, we wouldn't have to face the fact that those live inside of us, all of us. If only Satan was just that, 
some kind of wicked creature opposed to God's will, then the transformation of the world wouldn't require the transformation of your heart. Mm. The fountain your heart is, the fountain from which actual evil and actual good actually flow according to Jesus. Satan always rises from within. The voice that accuses the alternative narrative, it doesn't make any sense if it's on the outside unless it harmonizes with what rises from within. Oh, I wish it was just an enemy. I wish it was an enemy that was already defeated. Friends, what am I saying? I think it's time to rethink some of the caricatures of our Christian youth. Caricatures in the form of super scary dudes called Satan who lived in super hot places called hell, always tugging on us, tempting us, trying to get us to join them in eternal bodily conscious torture. That's way too easy. Those are ancient superstitions. Now I know what Paul, an intellectual product of his day, wrote. I know what Dante wrote. I know what Francis Frangipan wrote. I know the psychological trauma of the Left Behind series. I know how it devastated good people. I know you can pick that book up for less than a nickel now. I know what the church has said. I know that they've held airtight doctrines for centuries around this. And friend, I also know that Jesus turns to Peter and speaks directly to the Satan that rose from within him, that attempted to counter the possibility that suffering might coexist with love and the redemptive ways of God in the world. Friends, any inner narrative that resists the way human and divine realms coexist seamlessly, occupying sometimes a single storyline that involves both love and loss, any narrative like that can be satanic in nature if you feed it. I heard Dallas Willard say back in 1990, I don't even remember, I think Matchbox 20 was popular then, that's about how I deal with decades. Somebody asked Dallas Willard, he's a theologian you may not even know, they asked him, what is a demon, what is an angel, what is the devil? And he says, any idea you feed long enough that runs counter to the story of God, that's a demon, that's a devil. And I watched about 300 preachers lose their collective minds. It was the 90s, we were still buying left behind books, friends. We were still freaking our kids out with the rapture. Don't get caught under the bleachers smooching with you-know-who, because if Lord comes back that night, you know where you're going, and you're going to burn forever. Oh, <laughs> what damage we have done. Thank us, therapists, because we have created your market. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, any inner narrative that refuses to accept how love and loss nearly always grow side by side, it needs to be spoken directly to, it needs to be rebuked, it needs to be resisted. That's hard to accept, isn't it? Once Jesus undresses Peter, he turns immediately to the others and makes absolutely certain that they understand that suffering, specifically the cross, will be part of the story. They will be part of love, meaning death and rebirth are integral. Death is not final. It's merely a portal. It's the process by which new life occurs. Love says there is always a, wraith, a way through. No feeling is final, says Rilke. Life always wins in the end. Peter says, no way, to which Jesus says, hello, Satan. Dear one, I don't actually know what you're facing. I barely know what I'm facing. I do know that you're afraid, and I know that sometimes it feels like the end. I know suffering isn't anything you want to willingly take part in, and yet I know that there will always always be a way through. To resist this is to deny what is patently observable about the world around us. Jesus showed us the way, but so does the maple tree, so does the imploding supernova star and the decaying carcass of a great white whale. They can all show us the same principle. 
Friends, wouldn't it be nice if we could be done once and for all with scary projections of evil personified? Wouldn't it be nice if we could be done with frightening prototypes conceived of in the ancient world designed and driven entirely by fear? Wouldn't it be nice if instead we could look inside ourselves where the whole world actually exists, where the narratives that refuse to accept the extravagant love of God in the world, where those narratives live and must be transformed right there, where those lesser ideas about the world are actually born as well? Wouldn't it be nice if we knew that this was the work of transforming the world? As is often the case, I'm actually asking you to upgrade an old idea for something far more powerful. So today I make you an offer. I will trade you one red dude with a pitchfork and a split tail for the awareness that false narratives are generated inside of us. They rise from the human heart. And when they contradict what we know to be true about the world as observed in the life of Jesus, we need to address them. We don't need to be afraid of them. We just need to resist them, name them, and shut them down. This final thought in my nose is starting to run, and I'm not going to do that to the soundtrack. <laughs> Just a little bit. Had a cold this week. Brought it back from Dallas for whatever reason. This final thought. Friends, Jesus leveled with Peter in real time in front of his friends, according to the memory of Matthew. But this doesn't mean that Jesus was done with Peter. Hang on. He spoke sternly, but with intent to restore him to deeper reason, to deeper awareness. When Jesus and his disciples left wherever they were for this fiery little exchange, Peter still walked right up front next to Jesus in the place of honor because he was still Peter, the rock, the leader of the 12. You understand that, right? What I'm saying is that struggling to make sense of suffering and loss is human. It's logical. This struggle doesn't shut the door on love. Love can hold that too if we relax into it, if we can accept the scope of it. Love has no actual enemies, friend. This isn't a world being fought over by God and Satan. The cosmos is not in play. God has no rivals. There are, however, lesser narratives that need to be transformed into the deeper truth that God inhabits all realms, all kingdoms, that all things will be subsumed into love and time in the end, and all things will be set free. Let it be, Lord, let it be. Thank you for listening to the Austin New Church Podcast. To stay connected, follow us on our Facebook and Instagram pages and head over to austinnewchurch.com where you can get added to our mailing list. Our services are also live streamed on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. if you'd like to receive the full experience. We're so grateful for who you are and who you're becoming. Grace and peace be with you.